Christ is risen. He is risen risen indeed. indeed. In the opening chapters of the book of Acts, Peter makes three sermons, and the crux of each one of the sermons, the high point of each one of the sermons, comes in these words. In Acts chapter 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. Acts chapter 3, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you, ra- and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Then Peter's sermon in chapter 5, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Amen. Please be seated. And if you would, grab your Bibles. We're going to be bouncing around between a couple of chapters here, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 5 of the book of Acts. So you might want to find the book of Acts. Uh, it'll be a little bit challenging to follow a little along with some of the, Steve, follow along with some of these kind of things. So we'll kind of track this together along the way. When I grew up uh, with some friends, we used to go swimming at a, uh, at a lake that was nearby the house. And as we would swim in the lake, uh, me and a number of friends, they were guys, and so of course we spent a lot of time roughhousing in the lake. Uh, indeed, we spent a lot of time wrestling in the lake. And I well remember one particular time when I got tangled up in the arms and legs of the other guys and I was underwater. I was underwater, and at first I was trying to get loose, and then the panic set in, and the fear set in, and the terror set in, because I could not get to the surface. Let me allay any suspicion that you have. I did not drown. (laughs) But I could have, and I would have, if one of my friends hadn't noticed that I was struggling so bad, reached down, pulled me out and pulled me into the surface, allowed me to breathe. What freedom, what release, what a a joy. I cannot tell you what it was like to go from not just the sense of death, but every possible picture of death for me to experience that and then to come to life. We live In every practical way, we live when we are separated from the resurrection of Jesus Christ in a world that is dominated by death. Now, we go to great pains to avoid that. We we try not to think about it. We separate ourselves from the imagery of death. We don't focus in upon the realities that death and the world around us is filled with death creeping in upon us at all times. I think it's evident by the way in which anxiety grabs us, 
how we are paralyzed by despair and doubt all too often, the cravings we have for recognition and for value, the way in which the uh, world as a whole causes us to question our identity or our purpose in life. I think in all of these ways, though we try to ignore it, it's uh, true that we have uh, lived, that we have embraced, that we cannot avoid a world that is dominated by death, separated from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. If I'm right, that the way to understand the angst of our society, the way to understand the frustrations that we all experience, the way in which we can understand the, the disappointment that surrounds every life is that we are trapped in a world that is dominated by death. And though we struggle, we cannot get free. If I'm right about that, then nothing models that as well for us as the disciples, and in particular, the, the Apostle Peter. Think with me for a second, just back a couple of days during the crucifixion and the Last Supper and Peter's actions during those time periods. You have a man who displays every evidence of being a tremendous coward. He denies, he, re, he rejects his Lord and his leader. He denies him over and over again, although he was warned about this. He hides with the other disciples, cowering in the upper room. And this is not simply because this man lacked courage. This was because this man was overcome by fear, overcome by doubt and disbelief. This was a man who, was, who, who had tried all of his life, like we all do, to put off the walls of death and who finally came face to face with it and could not hide anymore. And consequently, he was crushed, overwhelmed by this world that is dominated by death. And yet, just short days later, just a few weeks later, here this man and his companions, his fellow disciples, are with a boldness and confidence that belies unbelief, that the very Pharisees, the opponents, cannot believe the courage with which these men are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's different, everybody, many people have noted this, that the disciples go from cowering in fear to the boldness of the proclamation of the gospel of Christ, not over a period of day, not over a period, sorry, of, of weeks or years, but over a period of days. They change on a dime. What's different? Obviously, what has taken place between the cross and their proclamation of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection has transformed them from men and women who are caught and who live in a world dominated by death. And the resurrection has pulled them into the land of the living. And they now are able to live faithfully in this land of the living because of the cross, yes, but because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And that's clear when you come to Peter's sermons. Okay, now you literally have to imagine that it is just weeks after the crucifixion, just a matter of days after Jesus was betrayed, after Jesus was denied, after Jesus was rejected, after the disciples were overcome by their anxiety and their fear, that now, after the moments of Pentecost, Peter stands up and gives a sermon that just stresses, that just emphasizes for all to see the transforming work of the gospel. And then the very next chapter, in chapter 3 of Genesis, after the healing of the beggar, Peter gives a sermon that talks about the healing power of the resurrection. And then finally, in chapter 5, when he's confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees by the powers of this world, Peter and the other disciples stand up and powerfully proclaim the responsibilities of the gospel. What we're going to do is we're going to look through those three sermons and highlight three different characteristics. First, what happens before the resurrection? When Peter talks about the resurrection, he focuses on what happened before the resurrection. Secondly, he talks about what happened during the resurrection or what happened in the resurrection. And then third, he talks about what happened after the resurrection. What is the result? What is the consequence of the resurrection. And so we're going to bounce between these three sermons. It's going to be a little hard for you to track me, but again, if you will pay attention to the sermons, the actual words that Peter uses, you will see that he talks real clearly about what happened before the resurrection, what happens during the resurrection, and then what happens after the resurrection. Note, for instance, at the very beginning in chapter 2, verse 23, what happened before the resurrection? How does Peter talk about the resurrection? He starts by saying this, you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. He begins talking about the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, that thing that has shaped and molded his life. He begins by drawing attention not to the resurrection, but to the cross, not to the coming of life of Jesus, but the death of Jesus. And he does this in all three of these sermons. You'll see it repeated over and over again that, Jesus be that Peter begins by saying, look, if you're going to understand the resurrection, you have to understand the cross. They are tied together in Peter's mind. And they are tied together in the biblical understanding as well. And this is one of the frustrations that we run into so often as believers in this world wanting to talk with people about Jesus Christ because you cannot talk about the salvation we have from sin if you don't first or also talk about the sacrifice that was paid for sin. You cannot talk about the freedom that we have, that we all sang about with such fervor and excitement a few minutes ago. You cannot talk about the freedom that we have from sin until you talk about the death that is present because of sin. You cannot talk about the coming of the new person, the new age, without acknowledging the passing of the old age. And so Peter consistently ties together the cross and the resurrection. And all too often we want to talk about the blessings and the benefits and all the things that come to us 
because we have been linked with Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And we should talk about all those things. But we cannot talk about all those things without talking about the cross. Because Peter doesn't. The scriptures do not. So he says here, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus Christ, in chapter 3, then in verse 15, he says, you killed the author of life. Listen, by the way, to the pronoun that he uses consistently throughout this thing. You killed. You did this. You did this. The previous, the before the resurrection is dominated by you. It's dominated by me. Peter's words here are, this is what you have done. What does he say here? You killed the author of life. Now, certainly this is, a, uh, I, I, this is a rhetorical gesture. This is a rhetorical way of doing things. Look at the irony that is there, how cute that is. You killed the author of life. Undoubtedly, Peter uses that language in part because of the irony makes it stand out for us. You ki- but think about it in a real pragmatic way. Those who have life because of Jesus have killed the author of life. But that is a mark of all of us who are live in a world that is dominated by death. We have done the irony of killing the author of life. And it's not just that we have rejected life, but we have embraced death. It's not just the negative that we have done, turning away from the author of life, but we have embraced the death. We live in a world that is dominated by death. And I think everybody can easily see that. But if you struggle with that, it's easy to pick up the way that Peter talks about it in the fifth chapter in his third sermon, where in verse 30, He says, you killed Jesus by hanging him on the tree. Now, this is how he describes what happened before the resurrection. You killed Jesus by hanging him on the tree. Now, to some extent, this is just a poetic way of saying things. Okay, Jesus was hung on a cross. A cross is made of wood. Wood comes from a tree. You killed him by hanging him on a tree. But the New Testament authors pick up that Old Testament understanding that to hang on a tree is to be cursed by God. And so when Peter here says that you hung him on a tree, he is stressing not just Jesus' death, but his cursedness, that Jesus was the curse of this world. If you struggle to see that you live in a world that is dominated by death, I sure hope you have no trouble understanding that you live in a world that is living cursed. We live in a cursed world. Things do not go the way they should. It's usually not hard for people to identify that. Our government doesn't function like it should. Our families don't function as they should. I don't function like I should. We live in a world that is dominated by death, and it's easy to see that because the curse 
is so present. And when Peter talks about this world that we live in before the resurrection, he is talking about a world that is dominated by death and is evidenced by the curse, the cursedness in which we all live. But Peter moves on to talk not just about the world before the resurrection, but then what happened during the resurrection. And here's what he says about the, what happened during the resurrection. Back again to chapter 2, verse 24. God raised him up, loosening, <clears throat> loosening the pangs of death. Now, I wondered why they translated it, the pangs of death. But what that is, is God raises him up. Okay, so after talking about everything that happened before the resurrection, what happened before the resurrection? You. We. But what happened during the resurrection? God. God did this. And what did God do? God raised him up, raised Jesus up, and he loosened the pangs of death. Okay, what are the pangs of death? The pangs of death is the agony, is the pain, is the suffering of death. Now, look, we all fear death, and rightly so. But the agony, the pain of death that, that the gospel message is talking about here is not the agony of the physical suffering. We're not supposed to look at Jesus's dying on the cross and see his physical sufferings. The agony of death that the resurrection solves is not that we have to die, but that we are separated from God. That's the agony of death. What's the great agony that Jesus suffered? It wasn't the fact that he was going to die physically on the cross. It was that he was going to die spiritually by being separated from God the Father. And here is what the resurrection does. The resurrection frees him from the agony of death. Because of the resurrection, Jesus is no longer separated from the Father. And so you've got this, this freedom, this release. Jesus has been pulled out from a world that is dominated by death, and he has been placed now into the land of the living. And what marks the living? Nothing marks the living more than the fact that we are in relationship with God. And so God the Father raises Jesus from the grave, raises him from a world dominated by death so that he might be free from the pains, from the agony of death. And then Peter goes on to talk about it in chapter 3 in his second sermon. He says in verse 15, you killed the author of death whom God raised from the dead. So it's not just, like think about this, it's not just that he's been freed from the pain of death, but rather now he has been given victory. He has been given, he's raised from the dead so that he is fully alive. And what is alive? The alive is the ability, the power to do that which we have purpose for doing. What is it that God has purpose for us to do? We are alive when we are accomplishing that purpose. And Jesus here is raised not just from the agony of death, so the negative is gone. No longer am I held by, no longer is Jesus held by death. But now he lives this entirely new life. He has given freedom in life. In both senses, the resurrection accomplishes both the negative, freeing me, freeing Christ from this, but also the positive, freeing me to this so that I might have new life, so that Christ might live anew. And then in the third sermon in chapter 5, he phrases it this way, God exalted in verse 31, God exalted him to his right hand. So in the resurrection, 
not only is Jesus freed from death, pulled up from the world of death and into the land of the living, but he is now turned away from the sufferings of death, turned to the victory of life, and he is exalted to God's right hand. What does it mean to be exalted? To be lifted up, to be praised, to be acknowledged for who you really are and who is God, who is Christ. He is God himself. He is raised up and exalted to the right hand. What's the right hand? The right hand is the hand of power. The right hand is the hand of authority. The right hand is the hand of blessing. And so in the resurrection, not only is everything in the death, the world of death removed, but the world of life, the land of the living, is given full meaning for us in what Christ accomplishes through the resurrection. And so now we see what Peter understands when he talks about the freedom from the dead world and the freedom to the living world. But now he goes on to talk not just about what happened before the resurrection and during the resurrection, but now he cycles through these sermons and he talks about what happened after the resurrection. What's the consequence of his resurrection? Look again in chapter two in the first sermon, verse 24. It is not possible for death to hold him. What happened to Lazarus after he was raised from the dead? I don't know. We're not told. But I know he died. He died again. What would it be like to be resurrected in such a way that you would consistently die over and over again? Resurrect you, you live another couple of years and you die again. Resurrect you and you live a couple of years and you die again. But that is not so in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not only is he freed from death, but now death has no hold on him. None. Zero. Why? Because he has paid the penalty for sin. He has paid the penalty and now he is freed completely from that death. Death has no hold on Christ, zero. Now hold on to that thought for a second. As we look at the second sermon, chapter three, verse 13, where we're told the God of Abraham glorified his servant Jesus. So after the resurrection, what takes place here? Jesus is glorified, what does glorified mean? Lifted high, lifted up, and where God's glory, his essence, shines throughout the world. That's what it means to, for God to be glorified, that his essence would shine throughout the world. A great picture of this, of course, is in Revelation. If you ever want to really get a picture of a world that is dominated by the shine of Jesus, read the last couple chapters of Revelation. And what you see is, yes, the, the shine of Jesus is overwhelming, but it's because of that shine of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, that we can see everything else the way it is supposed to be seen. It is because of the resurrection that those of us who are still stuck, still trapped in the land, in the, in the world dominated by death, that we can experience the land of the living because of the purpose or the consequence of his resurrection that is identified in the fifth chapter, the third sermon, where Peter says, 
God exalted him, in verse 31, exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior. Leader and savior of who? Of us. He is the leader and savior of us. Why? So that he might give repentance to Israel, that he might give repentance to his people and forgiveness of sin. I don't know if you were paying close enough attention, but two or three times during the sermon, I slipped by saying this is what God did in the resurrection for Jesus, and I slipped and said for us, because that's where I'm headed. Where I'm headed is right here, this last passage, where Jesus now, where Jesus' resurrection is identified not just as something that happened for him, but something that because it happened for him, has happened for everyone who trusts and relies on the name of Christ. That's why this day is marked out as it is. That's why we celebrate this day with the power and enthusiasm we have, not just because Christ has been raised from the dead, as wonderful as that is, but because built into that is the promise that he is our leader and our savior. And therefore, what happens to him happens to each and every one of us. You need to go back and read those texts. And instead of Christ, put your own name in there. For you too have been dwelling in a world that is dominated by death. You too have been nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. You too have been raised to life in such a way that it is no, that this is turned away from the penalties of sin and that you are wildly embracing now what it means to truly live. You too have experienced all of these things, what it means to live in the land of the living because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we go crazy about this as Christians, and we should go crazy about the resurrection, we are affirming not just what has happened to Jesus, as great as that is, if that's all we had, it would be well worth cheering. But Peter doesn't just talk about what happened before the resurrection and during the resurrection. He also has talked about what has happened after the resurrection. And what has happened after the resurrection is that that too has happened to us. Brothers and sisters, don't live anymore trapped in a world that is dominated by death. Until the Lord brings us into his presence, we have to live here, but you are no longer trapped here because God himself in raising Jesus from the dead has also reached down into that world dominated by death and has pulled you as well into the land of the living. All that he has given, all that he has blessed, all that he has poured out upon Jesus Christ, he also pours out upon you the joy, the blessing of being able to be reminded again and again that Christ has risen. Wow, were you guys not with me on that one? Christ is risen. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your raising from the dead. We thank you so much for the salvation that you have brought, that you are our leader and our savior, that you have brought repentance into our lives, that you have brought forgiveness of sin into our lives. Lord, we need those things because we are indeed surrounded by a world of death, and that is not how you created us, that is not how you redeemed us. 
bring us into the land of the living more and more powerfully each and every day. We pray in your name. Amen.